Well, good morning again and welcome to this gathering of Redeemer Church of Dubai. It is a joy to see all of you here this morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I serve as the senior pastor here. And there's a reason I serve as a senior pastor and not on the music team. Well, first of all, what a wonderful joy it was to sing this morning so far. I love our music here. I love singing together. Uh, I checked my messages right before I got up here to see if there were any last-minute announcements I needed to make. And I saw a message from my wife saying that at some point my microphone was on during the singing. So I'm not sure if you heard me in the band today. Now, there's a problem with that because, see, I can't really sing. At least not now. In heaven, my voice will be redeemed. And I will sing as beautiful as the rest of you, but I'm either tone deaf or I just can't make a note, maybe both. And so this reminds me of back in our first year as, as a church plant, we were singing a new song and Cherie, one of the ladies on the music team, was leading out in the song and she sang the first verse by herself just to teach it to us. And then we were all supposed to come in as a church on the second verse. But the problem was she sang wonderfully, but in the second verse, people didn't quite catch on and they weren't really singing. And so me being the leader I wanted to be right there in the front row, I just sing as loudly as I could. The problem was my mic wasn't muted. And so it sounded awful, and Cherie's up there. She's not knowing what's going on. Afterwards, she said, it sounded like the speakers were demon-possessed. <laughs> and she had no idea what was going on. Well, there was spiritual warfare that day. And I will probably sing a little quieter in the final two songs later today, just in case. So it was a, it's great to be with you. It was great to join together for First Sunday Prayer. We had great turnout of, of men, women, and many children just to come and pray today. Joey Samara, longtime church member, taught from Psalm 103. We heard from Robin Cherian as Robin and his family are moving to Cochin to be a part of Grace City Church and to work with uh, Pastor Benoit and Benjamin there in Cochin. Uh, we also got to hear from Pastor Scott as the Zellers transitioned to the U.S., we made that announcement uh, a few weeks ago. There were no tears this morning, but there was prayer for the Zellers as they uh, head on out. We also prayed for about a dozen other churches, some in the UAE and others. We prayed for the Gulf Theological Seminary. We prayed uh, for pastors in places like Turkey, uh, Lebanon, and more. So make note, our next first Sunday prayer will be on June the 4th. So every first Sunday, we close down the tweens classes and our equipping classes. We gather right here in this room to pray for the needs of the church and the needs of the world. Well, I'm preaching today, as you know, in the book of Romans and the verses from uh, chapter 4. Next week, we'll be inviting from Gulf Theological Seminary our Abu Dhabi campus director, uh, Dr. Sam Parkinson, will be preaching from the Psalms. And then the next week, uh, Pastor uh, Morgan Renu will be leading us in an eight-week series in the book of Judges. So we'll be walking through Judges eight weeks in a row. So you want to get started just studying that book, reading through it, getting familiar with it. In two weeks, we'll start in Judges. We'll do a little more Psalms over the summer, and then we'll be back in Romans. But first, today, our 17th sermon in the book of Romans, and we'll be looking at chapter 4. We'll see two illustrations today of what we've been looking at in terms of justification, which means this declaration of righteousness. We've been looking at this section from Romans chapter 3 verses 21 
on through to the end of chapter 5. So we're right in the middle. We've seen this explained so far, uh, but today we'll see two illustrations of what Paul's been explaining. And here's the main point of the sermon. We have really three points or three sections, but the main point is this. Faith in the one true God is and always has been the grounds for salvation from God's judgment. Faith in the one true God is and always has been the grounds for salvation from God's judgment. Paul's purpose in this chapter is to show us that his teaching is the same teaching as the Old Testament. Paul demonstrates that both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach the same truth. He'll call two expert witnesses to the stand. Abraham, our forefather in the faith, the father of the Jews, and King David, the greatest king in Jewish history. In Romans, Paul shared the gospel. Paul has taught us about justification by faith. He has defended it, and now he is going to illustrate it. He's going to illustrate it by showing us that both Abraham and David were saved by faith apart from works. So our outline this morning consists of three sections. Number one, Abraham's life of faith, verses 1 through 5. Two, David's words of faith, verses 6 through 8. And then our response in faith, verses 9 through 12. Abraham, David, and then we'll look finally at us. So number one, Abraham's life of of faith. I'll begin in verse 1. If you have your Bibles and haven't already turned there, you can find Romans there towards the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And the big numbers there are the chapter numbers, so in Romans 4, and then we're in the beginning of the chapter, so that's verse 1. Let me read down through verse 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We'll stop there. Now, in these verses I've just read to you in this passage in the book of Romans, the, the teaching's not really novel. Paul's teaching is not original. This very same truth of salvation by faith that Paul proclaims in Romans was proclaimed in the Old Testament. Now, if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, we're glad that you're here. We're, we're thankful that you're here. We pray that you would keep coming and keep joining us. But if you're new, the, the, the Bible is made up of two sections. The Old Testament, which is about two-thirds or so of the Bible, and then the New Testament, uh, which is kind of the final section. The first section, this, this bigger section, is the Old Testament. In it, there were promises made of a Savior to come. It begins with the book of Genesis. It ends 
with the book of Malachi. Then there's the New Testament. It's, it's shorter, but not less significant. And it begins with a record of promises kept by God. So we have promises made by God in the Old Testament, promises kept by God in the New Testament. And really, the, the New Testament starts with a, a, a new starting point, a new era. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to earth. And so the beginning of the New Testament marks God who came to earth, Emmanuel. And we see Jesus' life and death in the first four books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then in the book of Acts, we see a history of the early church. And then we see a whole bunch of letters, a whole bunch of teaching on Christianity, on the teaching of Christ. And then at the very end of the Bible, the very last book, we have Revelation, uh, where we see the, the end times. We see Jesus coming back. We see the ushering in of eternity. But here's the point. It's not as if in the Old Testament, this, this large section here where we see the law, it's not as if in the Old Testament you were saved by the works of the law and then all of a sudden in the New Testament pages you're now saved by faith. That's, that's not true. That's not accurate. It's also not accurate to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. Well, the Old Testament isn't old in a sense that it was out of date and we needed something new. No, no, both work together. Both come together. It's divided this way as a marker of Christ's appearance on earth at the beginning of the New Testament. No, God is a God of grace. God is a God of perfect grace and justice from eternity past all the way to eternity future, from the pages of the Old Testament on through the pages of the New Testament. And what we see is that Abraham was saved the same way that we are, by faith. Now, one point to make here, though, that is important. Abraham's faith looked forward to a promised one to come. He trusted in the promise of a Redeemer. We see this way back in Genesis 3.15 even, this promise of a deliverer who would crush the serpent's head. We, we, we see this promise throughout the Old Testament, and so Abraham's faith was in the promised one to come. Abraham looked ahead. Our faith looks back. We look back to the work of Jesus 2,000 years ago. The main difference is the time frame of where the object of our faith is, but it is still faith. One looks forward, one looks backwards, but both look to the Savior and both ultimately look to the saving work of the same Savior. Now, Abraham was a great illustration because if anyone could boast in works, it would be him. Verse 1, what shall we say about Abraham? Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he could boast. But there's a problem. He can't boast before God. Why? Because he wasn't saved by works. How was he saved? Verse 3 is very clear. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Counted, or you could say credited. This is to confer some kind of status not held before. To be counted as means that God regarded Abraham as if he himself had lived without sin. 
This is important. Abraham wasn't righteous by his actions, but God treated him as if he were righteous. This is incredible. A sinner, and yet at the same time, righteous. Now, a reading of this chapter in Romans presupposes a knowledge of the biblical story of Abraham. Some of you may be hearing about Abraham for the very first time, and others might not know the main references that Paul is pointing back to here in Genesis chapter 4. There are probably four points of reference here to Abraham's life that are in view. The main reference is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, but I'll go in canonical order here. Let me first share about Abraham's first, really his first detailed mention in the scriptures. It comes back in Genesis chapter 12. In the first verses, God calls a man named Abraham, at that point named Abram, and he calls him from a place called Ur. Uh, he tells him to leave his home, leave his people, to go to a land that God would show him. God doesn't even tell him where he's going to go. He just says, pack up your things and go. Now, the closest that Gloria and I could relate to this was in our second year of marriage. Uh, we were moving, and yet we didn't know exactly where we were going. We had applied for a job, and Gloria was waiting to hear if she would get a job uh, running, leading a residence hall, a dormitory on a university campus. And with this job came housing. And so we uh, were waiting for the call that seemed to drag out day by day until we had to move out of our current location. So we rented what's called a U-Haul truck in my country. It's what it sounds like. You haul your things. You pick up and lift, carry your things, and you put them in the U-Haul truck, and then you yourself drive the truck, and then you and maybe some of your friends unload the truck in your new home. And so it was the day that we had to move, and so we loaded the U-Haul truck, but we we had nowhere to take it. So thankfully we had friends living in another part of campus with a big parking lot. And so our plan was just to drive the U-Haul truck and keep renting it and leave it out front in our friend's parking spaces and to stay with a friend and just wait until we got the call. And so we did that. It sounded a bit crazy. We, we were going to sleep at a friend's house. But thankfully, we soon received a call that Gloria had gotten the job. And so we jumped in the U-Haul truck and we drove it to our new home and we unloaded it and we had moved. Well, minus the moving truck drama, you probably have your own stories of uncertainty. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a place of, of moving. Maybe you knew where you were going, but there were still uncertainties of what was to come, of what God would have for you. Maybe you were starting school or you were moving for university. Now, I share this example and those examples to say that what Abraham here was doing culturally, what God was asking Abraham to do all these years ago was at least a thousand times more crazy than any example that we could give, especially given the culture of the day. For Abraham, there was no map, there was no destination, just go. And in the midst of this, God also made some pretty lofty promises to him. The, he, God promised to give him a people that he didn't have, a multitude of people, to use his family to bless the earth. Now, this is kind of crazy. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, kind of agrees with my sentiment. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out 
to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, Dr. Allman, my seminary professor, said this may be the greatest act of faith in all of human history. Well, because faith normally at least begins with some knowledge. But Abraham, at this point, when you read the scriptures, at this point, Abraham knew very, very little about the true God. He was asked to uproot his entire life to go out on what looked like a wild goose chase. And by doing so, he literally cuts himself off from his past from his ancestry. Now, this would be big today, but it would have been an unthinkable step in these times. Abraham also now, by leaving, is what's called a sojourner. He's now living this nomadic life. He leaves home, a stable home, to wander. A sojourner lacked the protection of their tribe and their people. Taken on this status, this downgraded status showed Abraham's amazing faith. He abandoned everything, revealing his deep commitment to God. That's really the first reference uh, in Genesis. We have another one, which is our real, really our direct reference, and it's also in Genesis. And we see it in chapter 15. We see it in verse Six specifically quoted here by Paul. But let me read Genesis 15, and we'll put these up on the screen, or you could turn in your Bible. I'm just going to read Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now you'll recognize that last verse from our Bible reading today. Secondly here, God makes his promise more specific. He says that, that Abraham will have a child, and him and Sarah will have a child, that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. It was here that by believing this latter promise that Abraham was justified, counted as righteous. It says it plainly in verse 6 that I just read, and he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The exact same language Paul uses in verse 4 of, or chapter 4 of Romans. Abraham believed, and that's what counted him as righteous. Well, a third reference point, Genesis 17. I won't read those verses. You can read it later today, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Josh read today verses, I believe, 4 through 8. And so 
you saw a bit of this in Genesis 17. It's here. Abraham was 99. I think that's older than anyone we have here in our church today. 99 years old, and God confirms this promise. Abraham is still childless. God confirms this promise of a son. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham to signify that he would be the father of many nations. And he gives them circumcision as a sign of his covenant. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Fourthly, God tested Abraham by asking him. So the promised son had come. His name was Isaac. And they greatly rejoiced. But now some years into Isaac's childhood, maybe even a teenager, young adult, we don't know precisely how old he was, but God asks Abraham, tests Abraham by asking him to sacrifice that promised son. Now, I can't imagine anything more confusing. I mean, think about it here. God goes to Abraham, leave your home. No map, no destination, just leave, and I'll show you the place eventually. I, I'm not going to tell you when, but just go. And eventually he promises this son, go to a place, I'll show you it later. I know you're old, you're like 100 years old, I'm going to give you a son, a promised son, and from this son, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. And now in Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to sacrifice, to give up the life of this promised son. I can't think of anything more confusing, more unthinkable. But we see that Abraham was willing to do whatever God asked of him. But before Abraham could sacrifice his son, God spares Isaac by providing another sacrifice, a ram in the thicket. There would be a blood sacrifice that day, but it wasn't Isaac. Now, Abraham was a man of faith. Verse 4, if it were works, it wouldn't be a gift because you would have earned it. And then the key in verse 5 and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You want the proof of this? Well, right here, God justifies the ungodly. Another way to translate the word is wicked. God justifies the wicked. The reality is when God counted Abraham as righteous, he was ungodly. Now, let me explain that a little bit. I've just shared about Abraham's great faith, maybe this greatest act of faith in human history. He leaves everything behind. He leaves his ancestors. He leaves his home. He leaves his culture. He leaves protection. He, he leaves his nobility. He lead, leaves it all behind, and he doesn't know where he's going, and he has so much faith that even there at the altar, he's willing to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac. No, Abraham was a man of great faith, and we see that even in the book of Hebrews. But at the same time, friends, let's make no mistake to, to say that because he had faith, it didn't mean that he was a righteous, sinless man. Abraham was ungodly. Right there, verse 5, justifies the ungodly. Well, God doesn't justify the godly. God doesn't justify the Sinless, he justifies the sinner. He justifies the wicked. He justifies the ungodly. The reality, again, is that when God saved Abraham, he was ungodly. The same is true of all of us who are saved here in this room. It's not like you cleaned up your life one day. 
It's not like you got yourself together and you did enough good works, enough religious rituals, and God looked down upon you and said, ah, he or she, they're good enough. I will save them. No, you were saved while you were ungodly. Romans 11 verse 6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. No, Abraham had faith, but Abraham was also a sinner. Genesis 20 records that King Abimelech caught 99-year-old Abraham in a lie. This wasn't the first lie about his wife Sarah either. Though they were related, Abraham and Sarah were, Abraham specifically withheld the fact on a number of occasions that Sarah was his wife. We read of at least two occasions in the Bible, but it wasn't just a two-time sin. In Genesis 20, verse 13, Abraham admits that they'd been saying this lie over the course of two-plus decades. He was a liar, and not just on this one occasion. He would often say that Sarah was his sister. He would often hide the fact that Sarah was his wife in order to protect himself, even putting Sarah in harm's way. Look at Genesis 20, verse 13. And when God caused me to wander, this is Abraham speaking. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, Sarah, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Yes, Abraham had great faith, but Abraham had great weaknesses. A man like Abraham could never be saved by his own righteousness. He led even putting Sarah in danger to protect himself. He lied on multiple occasions. Now, friends, these verses are encouraging to us because God justifies those who believe and those who are sinners. Those are our two qualifications for faith. Only sinners are qualified for saving faith. Only sinners are qualified for salvation. Verse 5 says it. Abram, Abraham didn't earn it. It comes through Christ. Faith is trust in God's saving provision. It's what author Tim Keller calls a trust transfer. It's the end of a kind of trust in yourself, and it's the beginning of another kind of trust in Christ. It's a trust transfer. A saved person transfers their trust in thinking that they can save themselves by their own ability to follow the law, and instead trust in Christ as the only way to be saved from their law-breaking. A trust transfer is the removing of hopes in one trust to another one. And Paul used Abraham's experience since he's the honored father of Israel. What must be true for him must be true for all Israel. Now, Abraham's obedience was not the basis of his faith. That's section number one. Number two, David's words of faith. David's words of faith there in Romans 4. That's the second section, verses 6 through 8. Let me read those. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We'll be brief here because David simply says the same things that Abraham's life illustrates. David could have boasted about his kingship. He could have boasted about all that he had accomplished for Israel. Yet at the same time, we know that he was an adulterer, even a murderer. He killed a man and stole his wife. Paul quotes here David's words, the ones I just read from Psalm 32. You could maybe look at that psalm later on today. We see that David clearly understood that he was a sinner who needed to be saved by grace. Listen to the first two verses of Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now here, David, rather than boasting in his accomplishments, in his kingship, remember David, little David, young David, was the one who defeated the Philistine champion, Goliath. No, David was a great warrior. He was increasing Israel's influence. He was establishing Jerusalem as a great city with the Ark of the Covenant. He was leading Israel to military victories. But David doesn't say that blessed are those who are sinless, blessed are those who are great leaders, blessed are those who slay the Goliaths of our lives, blessed are those who are blameless. No, he says no such thing. What does he say in the psalm? Well, he said, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. You could say, blessed is the man who God credits righteous apart from any works. David says, those who the Lord forgives, there's no account of their sin. It's not counted against them. David's words in Psalm 32 are in step with Abraham's actions and outcomes back in Genesis. The two key Old Testament figures are counted as righteous, not because anything they had done, but by what God had done and by their faith in what God had done. Well, the late pastor John Stott says that justification involves a double counting or a double crediting. On the one hand, negatively, God will never count our sins against us. On the other hand, positively, God credits our account with righteousness as a free gift by faith, altogether apart from works. And in this passage, Paul brings forth two witnesses to show us this, Abraham's life and David's words. And it's obvious, Jews and Gentiles, those in the Old Testament, those in the New Testament, were all saved by faith, as well as we are today. And that leads us to our third and final point, section number three, our response in faith. We've seen Abraham's life of faith. We've seen David's words of faith. Third, we'll see our response in faith. And so back there in verses 9 through 12, we see this. Let me read this for us. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also 
for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. Here's the key, before he was circumcised. And that takes us to the end of Romans 4. So our response in faith. Well, look, just consider those verses. Abraham was saved by faith. But some interesting things in these last verses here as Paul finishes his argument one last time on the blessing of forgiveness. It is available for the circumcised, which means the Jews. Also the uncircumcised, which means the Gentiles and everyone else. And just so everyone is clear, Paul asks that question before moving on. And here's the question. Here's the one I just read, so we know the answer. But here's the question. Did God credit Abraham as righteous before or after he was circumcised? Because if he was credited as righteous after he was circumcised, then I suppose one could argue, see? See, it was a religious work. It was something that Abraham did that worked to save him. But if he wasn't, then that argument was dead in the water. The Jews regarded circumcision, this procedure done to a days old baby boy, as a sign of membership in the Jewish nation. It was a religious symbol that you belonged to God. So this was a big deal. If it was done after the credit of righteousness, and as a result of that symbol, then justification would have only been able to be available to Israel or those who would join. But ah, verse 10, which I read, puts the argument to rest. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. No, Abraham was already credited as righteous. We know this because of Genesis Chapter 15, verse 6, which I read earlier, it was then he was credited as righteous, but he doesn't get circumcised until Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision was not a condition of righteousness, but it was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It was an outward seal of an inward action, a sign of what was already there in Abraham's life. Faith in a Savior to come, a righteousness that was imputed, that was given, that was credited, that was counted as righteous to Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith apart from circumcision. Therefore, everyone can be saved by the same faith. Circumcision was then a sign and a seal of what was already there. Similar to us today, 
when we talk about baptism, baptism doesn't save, but it is a symbol of an inward reality. But there's a distinction between a sign and reality. A sign is not the real thing. A sign points to the real thing. Now, if you're driving on E11, you're there on Sheikh Zayed Road, and you're trying to go from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, you're following the signs, and you're doing whatever you can to not follow the signs to Sharjah. Now, I love Sharjah, nothing against Sharjah, but you don't want to go to Sharjah on E11 if you're trying to get to Abu Dhabi on E11. And so you're following those signs, and you're looking for that E11 sign that says Jebel Ali, and it says Abu Dhabi, and you're trying to follow that sign. Now, that sign itself is not Abu Dhabi. It would make a poor substitute for the actual city. It's only a sign, but a sign points beyond itself. The sign of circumcision pointed beyond itself to the covenant promise that God made with his people. Circumcision was a sign of the promise of justification by faith alone. In baptism, baptism is a, is a sign. It does not confer what it signifies or what it symbolizes. It symbolizes salvation, but it doesn't give salvation. It's merely a sign that points to the salvation that that individual already has. Now, it's not only a sign, it's a seal. Circumcision was a seal. Now, this idea of a seal harkens back to how a king in the ancient Near East would issue a decree. So he might write up a decree, but then he would have his ring. It was called a signet ring. A signet uh, means a small seal, like a stamp. And on the ring, you would, you would bury the ring in some wax. You would have your official decree, and then you would take that ring dipped in wax, and then the king, with his personal signet ring, would stamp his personal approval of that edict or that decree saying that those are the very words of the king. Well, the Bible tells us today that the Holy Spirit is our seal, that when God saves us and we place our faith in Christ, we're told that the Holy Spirit actually indwells us. This is our seal that we are his. God saves and we are credited as righteous by faith. So four applications as we close. Number one, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Remember the main point of the text. Faith in the one true God is and always has been the grounds for salvation from God's judgment. Faith alone saves. If you're new to Christianity, new to this church, maybe you're a visitor today, maybe you've been coming for a while from a different faith background and you've been considering the claims of Christianity. Again, we're glad you're here. You're welcome next week and any week. My question for you would be this. When it comes to placing your faith in God, what are you waiting for? Maybe for some of you, you have been attending for a while, maybe even in a community group. Maybe you've known Christians for a while. Maybe you've been a part of church all your life, but you haven't placed your faith in Jesus alone to save you. My question for you is, what are you waiting for?
Our text today shows us that not even Abraham, the great forefather of the faith, not even King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, could save themselves. If they couldn't do it, neither could we. This means that you can never clean your life up enough to earn God's favor. It means that we can never get our act together enough to please God. It means there's nothing you could go do on your own to please God. You need God to provide a Savior for you. So whether you're six in this room or 96, you need the same Savior. Thankfully, God has provided one for you. We can look back. So the Old Testament looked ahead to the Savior and placed their faith in the Savior to come. We look back at the Savior who has already come, who is coming back again. But we can look back 2,000 years ago when Jesus, God in the flesh, came to this world, not far from here, and he walked this earth. And he lived three plus decades. He was tempted, but never sinned. Faced many of the same trials that we faced and even more. And yet he did not sin. And as a sinless sacrifice, he went to the cross. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross. Not because it was something wonderful, it was something horrible, and it was something terrible that he endured. Death and facing the full wrath of God. Not a good thing. And yet it's a good thing for us because it means we don't have to stay dead in our sins and in our trespasses. Jesus died there on the cross. After three days, the gravesite was empty because Jesus wasn't there. Death couldn't hold him. That gravesite couldn't contain him. He had risen from the tomb. He was sacrificed in our place, and his righteousness is given to us by faith. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. There's nothing in our hands we can bring. It's an acknowledgement that we're sinners in need of grace. So if you believe that, if you have placed your faith in Christ, no matter your background, no matter your past lifestyle, God will see Jesus in you. This is incredible. No matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, if you place your faith in Jesus, God looks at you and he sees Christ and Christ's righteousness. This is absolutely stunning, absolutely incredible. God sees Jesus in you. You can be saved now for all eternity. And so I ask you the question again. What are you waiting for? Today is the best day to turn to Jesus and be saved. We're not guaranteed of tomorrow. Well, if after all that I've said, you're still wondering, what is it that I must do to be saved? Do I need to sign a card? Do I need to raise my hand, attend a class? Let me say this as clearly as I can. One author I love put it this way. Nobody has ever been saved by a profession of faith. Let me clarify that a bit so you know what I'm saying there's no walking down an aisle that saves you, no activity that can save you. There are no certain words that you have to say. There's not some secret prayer that you have to proclaim. There's not some sentences that you must utter publicly to be saved. Nobody has ever been saved by a profession of faith. But it's the possession 
of faith which saves. Do you see what I'm getting at here? It's not the profession, but the possession of faith that saves. Jesus even says this in his famous Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Many will profess Jesus, many will proclaim Jesus, but not really have faith. That on the last day, Jesus says, many will say, they spoke of me. And Jesus will respond and say, I never knew you. You profess Jesus, but you didn't possess faith in Jesus. Now, if we profess or if we possess faith, we should profess it. That's what we do in baptism. That's what we do even as we sing these truths and pray. It's what we do when we share the gospel with non-believers. It's what we do when we study the Bible with our family and with our friends. But it's the possession of faith, not the profession of faith, which saves. And so, friend, if you're sitting here now and you have faith in Jesus, if this is the posture of your heart right now in your seat, you are saved. Period. Done deal. That's it. You're saved. And so now you go on and you profess it to others. So if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, what are you waiting for? May today be the day, and you can do that right now from your seat because it's a heart posture. Jesus alone can set you free from your sin. Have faith in God. Number two, a second application. Be thankful for your faith. This is for those of us who do believe, those of us who are followers of Christ. Be thankful for your faith. Steve Robinson, a pastor in the UK, says a lack of thanksgiving leads to a heart of ingratitude. A lack of thanksgiving leads to a heart of ingratitude, which is the devil's playground. No, the whole reason Christ has purchased us is because we were wicked. The cross shows us our sin. It's been said the cross criticizes us more than anyone else can. You and I were so bad that Jesus needed to die for us, and he has. So Christian friend, are you thankful for the salvation you've been given? Do you rejoice that you are saved from the wrath of God? Are you overjoyed that you will spend all of eternity beholding the face of God? Are you thankful that in God's kindness, He chose you? He chose you. And He saved you. Do you look forward with thanksgiving to a day coming when there will be no more pain, suffering, conflict, and sin. Oh, Christian, be thankful for your faith. It is the gift of God. Number three, persevere in ministry by faith. Persevere in ministry at our staff retreat. We had a staff retreat here in Dubai earlier this week, and Pastor Luke Humphrey from Redeemer Church of Elaine was our guest speaker, and he gave two sermons from the book of Philippians. And in one of the talks, he reminded us that ministry is not easy. That ministry will never be easy. He said that when tough times come, rather than be frustrated, we should say, well, what did we expect? Did we think it was going to be easy? No, this earthly race, this ministry here is not easy. It is challenging for every one of us. Perhaps you've heard it said before, if it wasn't for the people, ministry would be amazing. Or maybe you've heard it said, if it wasn't for the people, the church would be great. Well, we can chuckle at that because we know that ministry is all about people, that the church is not a building, but the church is actually a people. But we know it can be a challenge 
It can be a challenge to do life and ministry together. And while today might be hard, maybe you're not recognized for your ministry. Maybe you serve behind the scenes and you wonder if anybody even notices you. Maybe you've been leading or hosting a community group for years and years and you wonder if you've made any difference. Maybe on other weeks you're upstairs and you're teaching our Redeemer kids month after month after month and you wonder, is my act of service, is my teaching really bringing any change about in these children? Maybe you meet with a friend for discipleship and you question whether all that effort setting up that weekly meeting is even worth it. Is anything happening? Is all my effort in vain? Maybe you try to minister in the church and there's conflict and there's pain and you're hurt. Oh friend, press on. Ministry's not supposed to be easy. This side of heaven, there is sin. Your sin, our sin, all of us sin. And we bring that to the ministry. This side of eternity, there's the devil. There's spiritual warfare. This side of eternity, there's sickness and there's death. But we press on in serving God because there's a day coming when our Savior will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And remember, on that day, there will be no hurt feelings. On that day, no conflict, no doubts, no sin, and all injustices. Every single one will be made right. Number four, and finally, look to eternity by faith. Look to eternity by faith. In the beginning of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we're told not only to have love for the saints, but all the saints. Now, what's challenging about this verse? It's not the word love or the word saints. It's the word all. Have love for all the saints. How do we live with difficult people on earth? Well, one pastor has said, the only way is with the hope of heaven. I've just alluded to this. Pastor Luke at our retreat, he used an illustration of riding a bicycle, and he said that when he was teaching his kids to ride a bicycle, their tendency was to keep their heads down, to look at their, the handlebars, to look at the, 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 the wheel, to look at themselves and the bike, and when they did this, inevitably, they would crash. And so he would teach the kids the way to ride the bike is actually to look up. It's to look ahead. It's to look at where you're going, and that will keep you stable as you go. The point, will you, my friends, we have to be looking ahead to the prize, to eternity, to look ahead. Only when we look ahead will we stay on the right path. Only when we look ahead will we stay in balance for this ride towards eternity. Only when we look ahead and have our eyes on that prize will we get there. Looking ahead to eternity means that our goal for our children is that they would have joy in Jesus on the last day. Our goal for each other as a church is that we would have joy in our Savior on the last day. And for those in our community group, our goal is that they would have joy in Jesus. Same for our neighbors, those in our youth group, those in tweens, those in our school, those in our family. And the path to this eternal joy and this eternal happiness is a recognition of our sin and helplessness and to have faith in God. Faith in the one true God is and always has been the grounds for salvation from God's judgment. It's also, friends, the grounds for our thanksgiving. It's the grounds for our perseverance. And it's the grounds for our endurance in this life, in this ministry, and until we see Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much We thank you for this text. We thank you for the examples of Abraham and David. Not because they were so great, but because you are. Because all of us from the first to the last deserves death and judgment. And yet you sent your one and only son Jesus to die for our sins. 
Oh, Father, would this move us to thanksgiving? Would this move us to perseverance? Would this move us to endurance? Would this move us to confidence as we live until that last day? Oh, Father, we thank you and we pray all of this in the mighty and wonderful and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.